be my hope, be my song, be the reason that I live. We might sing those words differently if we were prisoners of faith in Eritrea tonight. You know, it's approximated that 5,000 asylum seekers leave Eritrea each month because of the conditions there. Release International describes Eritrea like this. And this is what we're going to pray about tonight. Eritrea is one giant prison where hope has disappeared and the majority of people are denied simple freedoms, basic human dignity and rights. Since 2002, the repressive regime has closed all evangelical and Pentecostal churches and imprisoned thousands of believers. So tonight we want to pray for our brothers and sisters who are there. But we also want to pray for Sunite and Soliana, who are part of the family here in Bloomfield, who are from Eritrea, but they're here and they're seeking asylum. So we come and we pray with confidence because Psalm 9 verse 9 says, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed and a stronghold in times of trouble. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we take you at your word and so we know that you are a refuge for the oppressed. And so, Lord, tonight we bring our brothers and sisters in these inhumane conditions in Eritrea to you. Suffering, Lord, perhaps in prisons and in circumstances that we cannot begin to imagine. Suffering unjustly. Suffering because they bear your name. And Lord, tonight we ask that you would strengthen them. Lord, we ask that they would be very aware of your presence with them. Lord, would you pour your grace out on them? Would you renew their hope in knowing that you are sovereign God and you are on the throne and they are not forgotten, even though they're in these circumstances? And Lord, we want to pray as well for the government there. Lord, we ask that you would bring justice and Lord, that you would put an end to this cruelty and this evil. And Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come in Eritrea and that your will would be done. We thank you that you are the judge of the earth. We thank you that you care about justice for the oppressed. And Lord, just in these moments, we just want to ask that you would press it on our hearts to pray for these people because your word tells us to. It's as if we were there with them suffering. And Lord, we ask that you would just be very near. Lord, we pray too for Sunait and Soliana that you have brought out of that country and brought here to be part of the family of Bloomfield. We thank you for the blessing that they are, for the joy that they bring, for their faith and their desire to serve you and to share your good news. And Lord, we long that you would make a way, that you would open the door, that you would grant favour. That Lord, that this time their asylum would go ahead, their application would be granted and they would be able to make their home here but father again we pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven so in all these things lord we pray tonight thanking you that you are the king on the throne even when the circumstances don't look like it and thanking you lord that 
you're building your kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen. Now we're going to read God's word in Psalm 9, which you'll find on the, in the Pew Bibles, page 546. Psalm 9, a psalm of David. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. My enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my right, my right and my cause. You have sat on your throne, judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken the enemy. You have uprooted their cities. Even the memory of them has perished. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the peoples with justice. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. For he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the, the cry of the afflicted. O Lord, See how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death, that I may declare, declare your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion and there rejoice in your salvation. The nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net they have hidden. The Lord is known by his justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. The wicked return to the grave, all the nations that forget God. But the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted ever perish. Arise, O Lord, let not man triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Amen. I'd just like to thank uh, Mark and the musicians and uh, Katie and uh, Grace and Jenny for leading us tonight so far. It's amazing how many of the themes that uh, we're going to talk about tonight have, have come up already, and that's, that's a God thing. So that's, it's lovely to hear that. Um, we're going to speak about uh, Psalm 9 tonight. But before we get into that, I wonder, has anybody seen this program on television? Put up your hand if you've seen this program. Broken? Anybody seen it? Okay, right, okay. <laughs> nothing, nothing like saying that you know about something without really knowing about something. You've seen it, Jeff? Thumbs up or thumbs down? 
Okay, very powerful, he says. Okay. It's a really amazing series. It ran for about um, six weeks in the lead up to the summer holidays. And it was about a Catholic priest, Father Michael Kerrigan. And it was a very unusual program by modern standards because it was a very sympathetic portrait of the Christian life. And it was a very sympathetic portrait of Father Michael Kerrigan as he goes about his work as a priest in the north of England. Very, very compassionate series. Compassion for the people that he works with. Compassion for Father Michael Kerrigan himself as he tries to minister to broken people while at the same time being broken himself. There's a very profound episode um, quite early in the series where a police operation goes wrong and a young black man is killed, a member of Father Kerrigan's congregation, right, a member of his parish. And there's a big investigation. And one of the officers involved in that investigation is also a member of his parish. And he confesses to Father Kerrigan what really happened. And Father Kerrigan encourages him to tell the truth to the inquiry. In the end, the officer's colleagues close ranks and he comes under enormous pressure to toe the line. It gets to the stage where he knows that if he doesn't lie about the events of that night, he could lose his job, his home, his wife's quality of life, his newborn daughter's quality of life. Those things would be completely jeopardized. So he folds. In the battle between truth and justice on the one hand and the big organization on the other, it's the big institution that wins out. And of course, there's some dramatic tension here as well, isn't there? Because we all know Father Michael Kerrigan, well, he's part of a big organization. He's part of a big institution where there hasn't always been truth. Justice was sacrificed during the clerical abuse scandal. And of course, he knows the truth about what happened on the night in question, but he can't use the truth to facilitate justice because the truth was told in the confines of a confessional box. Broken is just a TV drama, but don't we all encounter injustice at some level? Katie was praying about that tonight in Eritrea. We encounter justice at some level. It might be, I don't know, a colleague who gets more favorable treatment in work than you do and you can't work out why. Maybe you're criticized at school or college for your Christian faith and your beliefs. But there's a level of injustice below that, I think, which goes far deeper, something that's agonizing and traumatizing. It might be the loss of a loved one. It might be the uh, violence, the systematic brutality that we see every night on our television screens. Brutal oppression and torture. Where do we go to cope with all of this injustice? How do we deal with the fact that we might, like Father Michael Kerrigan, know the truth, but we can't use it to unlock justice? Where do we go if we have been broken by injustice? Well, Psalm 9 is a good starting point, but I'm very conscious of the fact that 
for people in this church, and we've prayed about people in this church, this might not be a matter of just abstract theology. This might be day-to-day life. So um, we're going to pray before I, I start. I'm going to ask for God's guidance and help in addressing these sensitive issues. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we live in a world that isn't just messed up. It's in open rebellion against you. It defies your values. It defies your laws. It defies everything that you're about as the creator, sustainer of this universe. But thank you, Lord, as we've been singing tonight, you are a God of mercy, mercy demonstrated by your blood. Help us, Lord, to see that tonight. Help us, Lord, to see you on the throne, the Lord who reigns in perfect justice. Help us tonight as we read through Psalm 9 together. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, even before we uh, get to verse 1, if you take a look in your Bibles uh, at Psalm 9, you'll see uh, something at the top of the psalm. Uh, It's an instruction, if you like, and it's a superscript for the psalm. It says, for the director of music, to the tune of the death of the son, a psalm of David. So it's clear that even before we get into this psalm, something peculiar is going on. The superscript is, uh, I suppose, is a a convention that we have. Uh, I'm looking at Bill here because he would know more about this than me. But the superscript is a convention that we have. But in the Hebrew Bible, it's the first verse of the psalm. And what it's doing is it's, it's, it's setting out the piece of music or the setting in which the psalm is used. So here we see the occasion of the writing of the psalm. And the psalm is set alongside a piece of music. And that piece of music is called the death of the sun. That's what it says there if you're following in the Pew Bibles in an NIV translation. That means we can be pretty sure that the setting of the psalm, well, it's not like a kid's own song. You know, it's not going to be upbeat. It's not going to be clapping of the hands. It's not going to be funky. It's going to be slow. It's going to be in a minor key. It's going to be a dirge or a lament. It's not upbeat. It's not joyful. And yet, look at the first two wonderful verses. They couldn't be happier, could they? Verse 1 and 2, I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. Can you imagine singing those fantastic, upbeat, joyful words to what? The tune of Abide With Me, maybe? Or Barber's Adagio for Strings? Or my own personal favorite, Johann Sebastian Bach's Come Sweet Death? Yes, that is a tune which uh, I I encourage you to check out if you so wish. Not a happy one. But these verses are in complete contrast to that. They are very happy, upbeat, joyful verses. Isn't that a bizarre contradiction? Happy, joyful verses with this dirgeful setting of lament. What a weird contradiction. Or maybe it's not. Maybe that is what makes this psalm so great, that it captures the conflict that we all can and must live in, that God is worthy to be praised no matter what our present circumstances. 
So what are the circumstances in which Psalm 9 was written? Well, we don't know for sure. All we can say is that it is clear that a crisis lies behind this text. And the nature of that crisis is best understood as that of oppression of the faith community. The structure of the psalm begins with thanksgiving, but it becomes a cry for help amid suffering. So it starts with thanksgiving, but it becomes a cry for help amid suffering. And life's like that, isn't it? One moment, the thanksgiving on the top of the mountain, the next minute, the cry for help in the valley below. The Boffins would also call this an imprecatory psalm. So that's basically where David is asking God to deal with his enemies on his behalf. And it's also a classic lament psalm. Here's what Dennis Bratcher says about lament psalms. He says, the theological significance of a lament is that it expresses a trust in God in the absence of any evidence that he is active in the world. Through a sequential and deliberate structure, the lament moves from articulation of the emotion of the crisis to petition to God to intervene, to an affirmation of trust in God, even though there's been no immediate deliverance from the crisis. But it's verses 3 to 12 that are the thanksgiving portion of this psalm. And they provide a kind of summary of God's mighty acts rather than a description of particular episodes in history. And in verse 3, we get a picture of the oppressors and how God is dealing with them. They are routed. They turn back and stumble and perish. Verse 5, it says there, look, their names are blotted out. And isn't that true? Of the nations mentioned during the period of Joshua's conquest of the promised land, how many remain well-known today? The Hivites, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, all consigned to history. And outside of Judeo-Christian circles, almost completely unknown. Their fate, when they came up against the God of Israel, well, there it is in verse 6, endless ruin. You've uprooted their cities. Even the memory of them has perished. And there's a contrast in verse 10 because there's a name that endures forever. Let's read it there. Those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. David is considering the history of God's relationship with Israel and the great things that he has done in the past. These acts show that God is worthy of praise. They also give David confidence to petition God for more help. Like so many of the Psalms, Psalm 9 is so disarming in its honesty. David is wrestling with this crisis affecting Israel. He's looking back at God's previous demonstrations of his love for his people, and that's spurring David to ask for God's help again. And it's a very real struggle that David is going through. He's at the end of his rope here. And the psalm is wonderful in how it promises hope and encouragement in the midst of adversity. And I think it gives five assurances, five promises of hope in adversity. I think those are you can be completely honest with God. That's the first one. 
The second one is that God gives us stamina to face the future. The third is that God understands whatever it is that you're going through. The fourth is that God will bring justice. And the last one that we're going to look at is that the Lord reigns, the theme of tonight's address. The Lord reigns. Let's deal with the first of those promises. And that is that if you've God in your life, you can be completely honest with Him. You have the ultimate pressure valve in God, as Dominic Smart puts it. God can take everything that you can throw at Him, and not one thing you say will surprise Him, because He knows it already. So when David cries out in verse 13, and it really is a cry, Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death. God doesn't say, oh, hang on a minute, David. That's a bit direct. Don't you know I'm the Lord of heaven and earth? God knows it all already. He knows how David is feeling. Our pressure valve should not be our friends, our family members, our colleagues, our wives, the children, family cats. It can, and it should be, God. Because God wants us to be honest with Him. Jeremiah 29, verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And that is the nature of a genuine relationship, isn't it? In genuine, genuine relationships, we're up front. We don't keep things back. We don't hide things. If we're in a genuine relationship, if we're close to somebody, you don't keep a lid on it. You express yourself. You express how you're feeling. You express what's really on your heart. And the same has to be true with God. That's the nature of a genuine relationship. And God wants a genuine relationship with us. So that's the first assurance, that if you've got in your life, you can be completely honest with Him. The second sign of hope, or the second assurance, in the midst of crisis, is the way in which God gives us great stamina to face the future. And anybody who's been through a crisis knows this. You know this. Following on from his cry to God for mercy in verse 13, David says, if you look at it in the next verse, that I may declare your praises in the gates of daughter Zion and there rejoice in your salvation. You see, the future holds two potential outcomes for David. The first is that he could die at the hands of his enemies. The second is he could have the chance to worship God. And David is given the strength to press on. And what does he do? He turns to God and he asks for a different future from the one that his enemies have got planned for him. He asks to praise God in the gates of, excuse me, in the gates of daughter Zion. And isn't that one of the ways in which God works for us in crises? And he works in us in crises. Romans 5 verse 3, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. One of the blessings we have as Christians is that in times of trial, God gives us the stamina that we need to face the future 
because we know that whatever it is that we are dealing with, it is not the end of the story. God will have the final word, and he has promised never to leave us or forsake us. He will give us a different future from the one that our enemies have got planned for us. Looking at the third assurance, God understands. David gets internal help from the one who knows everything. As he speaks to God, David gets internal strength without internalizing the problem. Now, without getting into the realms of pop psychology here, okay, I, I thought to myself, well, how can I kind of, how can I find a metaphor for this or a way to illustrate it? So bear with this analogy from my work, okay? This may work or may not. If I have a problem with my computer, I call IT, okay? And the IT guy, he remotely logs in, or she remotely logs into my computer, usually from England, and um, he goes through the programs and the systems, which seem to be the cause of the problem, and he types some new commands in the operating system to make the different programs talk to each other, okay? And before you know it, we're back online, all systems go, okay? Well, two things are happening there. The first is that the IT guy actually listens to me and doesn't judge me most of the time. Sometimes I get called a picnic. I don't know if you've experienced that in your workplace. Problem in chair, not in computer. Sometimes <laughs> I get that, okay? But most of the time, most of the time, the IT guy actually listens to me and he doesn't judge me. He believes me. He understands there is a problem and he wants to help, but he listens first. The second thing that is happening is that I don't have to go through the manual myself and attempt to do IT for dummies in an effort to get my machine up and running again, because that would be stressful at best and frankly impossible at worst. So in the case of the IT guy, I've got someone who listens, someone who understands, and somebody who can help. But in the case of David in this psalm and in our daily lives, we need somebody we can talk to, somebody who understands, somebody who listens. And that understanding is far, far deeper and more profound than the understanding the IT guy has for the BBC operating system. Because God created every operating system. He created the operating system that allows us to live and breathe and have our being. He understands every aspect of our character, and he knows whatever it is that we're up against. Whatever our crisis, he understands. Poisoned speech, he understands that. Plotting, he understands that. Hatred, he understands that. Evil, he understands that, and he understands it because he's faced those things. God knows what it's like to get rejection for doing the right thing, because that happened at Calvary, and that continues to happen today. Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. The third assurance for us is that God understands. The fourth assurance, and this is both 
a wonderful uh, promise and a difficult part of the text for me to handle because there'll be people in this church with far greater experience of these challenges than I have ever had. But a fourth area for hope is that God is ultimately going to deal with the injustices in the world. We become inured to injustice, don't we? Blasé about it, washes over us, desensitized is the kind of modern buzzword. I picked up the Guardian newspaper earlier in the week, just out of the blue. My eyes hit a particular um, story, and I started to read it, and this is what it said. The pine trees creak and rustle ominously beneath even the faintest breeze, as if the vast forest between Lake Onega and the Finnish border remains reluctant to give up its dark secrets. The secret police brought 6,241 Gulag prisoners to these woods during Joseph Stalin's Great Terror in 1937-38, put them face down in pits dug in the sandy soil, and shot them in the back of the head with a revolver. As their remains decayed, the, the earth above each mass grave sank into the ground. It was these pockmarks in the forest floor that helped Yuri Dmitriev and the other members of Memorial, Russia's oldest human rights organization, find this site at San Sandermok in 1997. It is one of the largest mass graves in the former Soviet Union. Now, I had never heard of Lake Onega. There it is up there. But over 6,000 people were murdered there under Stalin's orders. 6,000, that's a lot. 6,000 over, mind you, 23 million people whose lives were lost during his dictatorship. Over 20 million people. That's four, over four times the number of people living on this island. And he's not even the biggest mass murderer of the 20th century. Who's that? Well, that accolade goes to Mao Zedong, the Chinese leader. At least 40 million people, maybe double this number, lost their lives during the massive move towards collectivization, farm ownership, most dying during his so-called Great Leap Forward. Great Leap Forward. There's a misnomer if ever there was one. The fourth biggest mass murder. Anybody know? Anybody guess? Not Hitler. Not even going to mention him. Anybody know who the fourth biggest? Not Pol Pot. The fourth biggest mass murderer, King Leopold II, the butcher of Belgium. He oversaw a vicious colonial regime in Congo, which killed an estimated 8 to 10 million people. Most people never even heard of him. Is that because his victims were black Africans? I don't know. But 8 to 10 million people. The injustice of it all, the injustice of it all, the injustice of Eritrea, it's almost beyond comprehension, isn't it? Suffering and injustice like this, well, it would be unbearable. It would be unbearable if, if we weren't certain that God is for us and with us. And that is the truth that David grabs hold of in this psalm to keep him from sinking. Look again at verse 5. It says, You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. 
you have blotted out their name forever and ever. The core sin is to forget that God is God and we are not. You see, this is justice. Those who forget God will themselves be forgotten. But those who remember God will be remembered forever. Christians know of one who remembered God but was completely forsaken. But because Jesus died in our place, we can be even surer than David was that God will always be there for us. If you're a Christian who has suffered a terrible, terrible wrong and your heart aches for justice tonight, know this. One day, the names of the wicked will be obliterated as if they never even existed. But not your name. Your name will be cherished by the Lord for all eternity. Isaiah 56, verse 5. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. Better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. You can make a decision in your life that you're not going to be defined and shaped by the injustice that you have suffered because you know, because we know that deep down God is going to deal with it. The atheist, though, the secular person, they must accept that there is no justice for millions and millions and millions and millions of people. The Christian looks forward to the day when the righteous judge will hand down perfect justice. One vision is hopeless, but one vision is ultimately hopeful. And if you're here tonight and you do not believe in God, I'd ask you, have you confronted that very real issue? How bleak is a universe in which there is no prospect of justice? Is there anything bleaker than that? But we have an assurance. We have an assurance that God is ultimately going to deal with all the injustices in the world. And now the fifth and final hope in adversity and this is the hope that God is most free to work in our lives, perhaps when we're actually at our most helpless. God is most free to work in our lives when we're actually at our most helpless. Here's what C.S. Lewis said in The Four Loves. Man approaches God most nearly when he is in one sense least like God. So we're closest to God when we're least like him, sometimes, in one sense. For what can be more unlike than fullness and need, sovereignty and humility, righteousness and penitence, limitless power, and a cry for help? You see, David experiences in this psalm a reminder that he is not the center of the universe. He's a king, yes, but he cannot bend events to his will any more than we can. 
When in verse 18, David says, God will never forget the needy. He's talking about himself. He needs God. And don't we all? Having God in your life gives you a sense of proportion and perspective. And when we can see ourselves in our rightful place, deeply loved, yes, deeply loved, yes, and deeply sinful, deeply loved and deeply sinful, compassion has room to grow. Here's what Walter Brueggemann says of these lament psalms like Psalm 9. This is what he says in his, um, his book on the psalms. He says, in these psalms, Israel moves from the articulation of hurt and anger to submission of them to God and finally to relinquishment, to letting go. Only when there is relinquishment, letting go, can there be praise and acts of generosity. So Israel moves in these laments from hurt and anger, expressing that hurt and anger to God, letting it out, as we were talking about earlier, to submitting them to God, to realizing that God is the one in control. He's the ruler. We can't bend events to our will. And then they let go. Israel lets go. And when that happens, there can be praise and there can be acts of generosity. And that can be true in our lives too. Because yes, we must let go and let God be God. But I don't mean that in a fatalistic way. I don't mean God will handle this. I, I can't handle this. Not in a cop-out way. In a deliberate way. Actively, consciously, acknowledging it is the Lord who reigns and not us. That's a deliberate act. And that is worship. Let's pray. Lord, as much as we would like, we cannot bend events to our will. We cannot make things happen as we would like them to happen. Only you can do that, Lord. Only you truly understand us. Only you can give us the help that we need. Only you will ultimately make all things right when you come again in power and in glory. Help us, Lord, to put you on the throne of our lives. Not to be little gods, not to try and rule things for ourselves, but, Lord, to live under your direction and your guidance and your will knowing your mercy and grace every step of the way. May we leave here tonight, Lord, with an assurance that you are the one who's in control, no matter what is happening in the world, no matter what is happening on our television screens, Lord, we know that we can completely rely upon you. No one understands us like you do. We are deeply loved and deeply precious to you. Thank you for being with us tonight and thank you for speaking to us through your word. In Christ's precious name, for his sake, amen. First, a doxology where we praise God and then a benediction where we bless God and ask him to bless us. 
from the conclusion of Jude's epistle, a doxology. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. And may the peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, rest and remain with you always.